You are listening to a podcast from Essendon Presbyterian Church in Melbourne, recorded 10 a.m. on July 23, 2023, presented by Rev. Chris Duke. Romans chapter 9, verses 6 to 13. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are Israel, nor are they all children, because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called, that is, those who are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. May the Lord bless to us the reading of his word. Let us pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, as we consider these words, these few verses, Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts, that you would teach us what you're saying. And Lord, we pray that you may bring encouragement to each one of us. And also, may your gospel be presented. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the first five verses of Romans 9, Paul has expressed his, his real heart, his real compassion, that he, he was moved towards his own Jewish people. And Paul, of course, he, in his ministry, he worked extremely hard for the conversion of Jews for the conversion of his own kinsmen, even though he believed in the, in the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. You see, the majority of, of Paul's fellow Jewish people had rejected Jesus as Messiah, as the promised Messiah. And they further accused Paul of not caring for his own people because, in a sense, he rejected Judaism and he proclaimed the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, of course, to all, including Gentiles. You see, his kinsmen, they'd been given the promises. They'd been given the covenants. Unfortunately, they rejected Jesus as Messiah. And so it appears that God's promises had failed. Now, when we read John chapter 1, verse 11, it reminds us, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. But Paul's primary strategy, as you read the book of Acts, read the book of Acts and you'll find that his prime strategy was to take the gospel first to the Jews. 
And as you read Acts, and as he visited all those cities in Asia and Asia Minor and in, in Greece, he made a point of first visiting the synagogue and he would proclaim the word of truth from the scriptures to his kinsmen and often they would reject him and then he'd go to the nearby houses to those who were God-fearers, those who were Gentiles and he would share the gospel of truth. Paul was a man who believed in God's sovereignty and yet he worked tirelessly for the conversion of his own people. However, does this mean that all the promises of salvation have come to nothing? And because the Jews have missed God's Messiah, that God's plan of redemption has ended? As we look at verses 6 to 13 this morning, Paul makes a statement in verses in verse 6, in the first section of verse 6, 6a, and it's important to remember, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. Paul remembered how he treated the early Christians. We know how he treated the early Christians. Until he was shown his own sin and was shown God's grace and mercy for himself, it's from this reality that he felt compassion to those who rejected God's word and his Christ. He longed for the salvation of the Jews. So Paul makes a statement in verse 6, and it's not penned as a question, but its meaning becomes clearer as we continue to read the next few verses. The second half of verse 6 implies an answer. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. One of the great concerns of any preacher who proclaims God's word is whether their preaching is effective. I'm not talking about style, I'm not talking about delivery or even passion, I'm talking about whether it's having an effect on those who listen. I'm pretty sure that many of you will not remember what I preached last week or the weeks earlier. Now that doesn't bother me because my role is to open the scriptures. My role is, in de- is to endeavour to unpack them. My role is to expound the scriptures accurately and with persuasion but the efficiency of the preaching and its power never lies with me. It's the Holy Spirit that works to pierce your soul, our souls. And it's impossible, it's absolutely impossible for God's word to be without effect. If you forget something, even a whole sermon, no, I would do that, I would forget a whole sermon. The Holy Spirit will still take that word to do with it what he wants and he'll hide it in our hearts until it needs to be found. Amen? That's the power of God's word. 
That's why Paul is saying that even though the Jews of his time and those in earlier times who rejected the prophets, remember that the Jews had a history of rejecting God's word, they rejected the prophets, they rejected the proclamation of God's word, but God's word is never nullified. God's word never returns to him void of purpose. And you may ask the question, as you observe the world around us and as you observe people, there are some incredibly intelligent, wise, talented and lovely people who've never heard the gospel. They've never sat under the preaching of the gospel. They've never seen or even read the Bible. And then there are, the, uh, uh, there are others who have heard the gospel and some have embraced it and some rejected it. And you wonder, why? Why? Why is it that lovely, intelligent, talented and gifted people would never hear the gospel? Why would God allow this to happen? And then there are some people who hear the gospel and they embrace it. Some embrace the gospel truth. They love Jesus with all their hearts, trust in him. And then other people hear the gospel time and time again and reject it. Why is it that those with the same opportunities, the same advantages, hear and receive the gospel while others reject it? When we observe the church, where the word of God is preached faithfully, where people rejoice in him and encourage one another to live in the ways of the Lord, yet even in the church, you see some who are true believers, who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, loving him with all their heart, while others are just going through the motions with no evidence, no fruit, no marks in their life that they've ever truly received God's grace. And this makes you wonder why. The same opportunities are there. They're under that. The same preaching of the word. Why the difference? So Paul tackles this question of why some embrace God while others reject it by starting with another question in verses 6 to 13. The question is, God's word of promise has God's word of promise to Israel failed? Now earlier we had read to us, and as we read John chapter 1, of course this is his introduction to his gospel, before he details Jesus' incredible life, his ministry, his deeds, his works and his saving acts, he says this amazing statement. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Jesus says that he made the world, but the world doesn't recognise him, doesn't know him, doesn't love him, doesn't follow him, doesn't trust him. And then it goes from bad to worse in verse 11. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. John declares that Jesus was the Messiah promised of Israel. Jesus by flesh was an Israelite, indeed a son of David. 
Yet the sons of David turned their backs on him. They rejected him. John certainly understood all the covenants made to the patriarchs of Israel with the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic covenants and the new covenant given to to Jeremiah. But when Messiah comes, Israel rejects him. Of course, there are exceptions. We know the exceptions. The disciples, the first disciples were Jews. The first believers were Jews. But mostly the Jews rejected Messiah. So the question Paul asked, does that mean that God's promises have failed? Now in the first part of verse 6, Paul answers, answer or his statement implies no. The word of God hasn't failed. God's covenantal promises haven't failed. But how do you bring together God's covenant promises to Israel and Israel's unbelief? So has God's word failed? And Paul's answer to this question is an emphatic no. God's promises have not failed. Paul uses this question to begin his discussion about God's sovereignty in salvation. And we'll be continuing this theme as we continue in in chapters 9 and, and beyond. And it makes you wonder what happened with Israel that allows Paul to talk with us about the sovereignty and the mercy of God in salvation. It's the question that Paul takes us to the, to the doctrine of God's election. And we get to answer these through, questions, through verses 6 to 8. So what does Paul say in 6b? For, for they are not all Israel who are Israel. God's promises have not failed because not all Israel is Israel. What does that mean? And then in verse 7, Paul goes on to say, nor are they children because they are the seed of Abraham. And again in verse 8, that is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. And what Paul Paul is saying is that Abraham's descendants are not all children because not all the children of the flesh are also children of God or children of the promise. To To be very clear, Paul repeats this in three different ways. You notice that? He's used three verses to say something similar. To be sure, God's covenantal promises have always found their fulfilment in a section of the people of Israel. To be sure, in the history of time, God's covenantal promises to Israel has have never been fulfilled with every last Israelite that was counted as a child of God. But there's always been a remnant, a remnant of believing people of God. Yes, there's the external community. But of that external community, there's a remnant who truly trust God, who believe his promises and enjoy the blessing of his salvation. And when Paul says, not all Israel is Israel, this reminds us of of an earlier chapter, chapter 2, verses 28 to 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart 
in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men but from God. Paul is saying that it doesn't matter that you're a biological Israelite unless your heart has been changed. The promises of God are only fulfilled with those whose hearts have responded to the promise of the Lord. They are Jews inwardly as well as outwardly. Can you see this distinction? Not all Israel is Israel. There are some who embrace the promises and some who don't. And then in verse 7, Paul says that not all the descendants are children. Jesus often had talks with the Pharisees, as you read the Gospels, all their followers. And in John chapter 8, verses 33 to, 30 to 44, he has a long discourse, a long discussion with the Pharisees. And of course, the Pharisees call on their biological heritage of being children of Abraham, therefore children of promise. And Jesus offends them because he informs them what true Israel is. They rely on that fact that Abraham is our father. Just because someone is an ethnic Jew, a member of the Commonwealth of Israel, doesn't mean that he or she is saved. And in that same chapter 8, 39, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. Not every Jew is a child of promise. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 40, and then he, uh, that they were plotting to kill him, pointing out that their works were not works of Abraham. And then he goes on and says in 44 that their true father wasn't Abraham, but was the devil. He says, you are the father of the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. You're, you're descendants of Abraham, but your father is the devil. That's what, he, what Jesus said there. Not all Israel is Israel. Not all descendants are children. You could be a biological descendant, but you are, but are you truly trusting and receiving the promises of God? And then he shares another image with us. Not all children of the flesh are children of the promise. Now this takes us back to the lineage of the promise. Remember Hagar? Remember Ishmael? Ishmael was Abraham's firstborn. But Ishmael was not the line of the promise. It was only through the line of Sarah that we have the child of the promise, and that was through Isaac. And there's a difference between those two. He makes it clear that not all Israel is Israel. And this is very clear. The kingdom of God is not inherited by physical descent. None of us can rely on our parents who might have been believers. Your children cannot rely upon their own salvation if you're a believer. Now, of course, in our church, we promote church membership. We think it's a good thing. When one becomes a member in our denomination, 
Most of the time you make a public profession of faith unless you're transferring your membership. But this idea reminds us that church membership doesn't save you. You can be part of the visible church, just like all within Israel were part of the visible community, but your heart may not be truly seeking after God, after the Lord Jesus Christ, therefore never truly experiencing the Lord's saving work. The scripture points us to the necessity of being in a saving relationship with God. Church membership, of course, flows from that saving relationship. It's one of the great privileges and duties of those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, but it doesn't cause your salvation. Many people might sit in church Sunday after Sunday but never embrace the promises nor the warnings, therefore never entering into a personal saving relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And this brings to us a subtle warning, doesn't it? Paul says the promises of God haven't failed because there have been some within Israel who trusted him in him while others haven't. And then Paul explains in verse 11 why this is. Now you might expect Paul to reiterate that the difference is faith. Paul talks about faith later on in the chapter but not here. It's not mentioned in verse 11 where he explains why not all Israel is Israel and why God's promises have not come to all of Israel with some rejecting him and some accepting him. And he goes right to the source, which is the sovereignty of God and God's choice. It has nothing about what we do. It has nothing about what we do. In verse 11, as he explains to us the basis of this distinction, why the distinction within Israel, why Isaac and Ishmael, why Jacob and Esau, why the distinction between these? And there you'll find Paul's stunning answer. The difference is not to be found in deeds or works. Rather, it's to be found in God's choice. The distinction within the visible covenant community displays God's purpose and choice. Notice God's reason for choosing Jacob in verse 11. For the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works but of him who calls. It was so that God's purpose and election might stand. God chose Jacob in order to, to teach the mystery of election, that God is sovereign when he dispenses his mercy. Even before he, he was born, God predestines Jacob even before we are born, God predestines those who will receive his saving grace. Jacob was chosen for demonstrating that God's grace is God's choice. In verse 11, Paul emphasises God, God's choice, God's purpose, God's calling. That's Paul's answer. 
Does this bother you? Does this grate on you a little? Do you immediately recoil from this type of answer? You see, most of us like the idea that we choose God. Most of us like the idea that we work out our own salvation. Friends, if your immediate reaction is to recoil, then you're not recoiling from the words of man. You're recoiling from what God says through the Apostle Paul. It may be uncomfortable, but it is absolutely, indisputably clear what he's saying. The difference goes back to God's purpose and God's choice. Paul is determined to show that every possible human factor is excluded as the basis to the action of God. And if you're resisting that particular teaching of Paul, if you're resisting this biblical truth, then you're missing out on a wonderful, a wonderful comforting teaching of God's word. Paul makes it clear that God's grace doesn't find its origins in us. God's grace isn't compelled by something that we do or that is in us. Rather, God's grace originates from himself. It originates from the heart of God. God's love falls upon us out of the infinite bounds of his own heart of compassion and it's not moved by something that we do it's nor it is repelled by something that we do. That part of it is absolutely wonderful when you think about it. You know, Jacob, Jacob's name means supplanter, deceiver. And yet God chose Jacob. God's grace was determined before the foundation of the world when he set his love on you. Therefore God displays this grace to you not because of your works, rather because of his mercy. Paul knows that this is hard to swallow, so he, he gives you three biblical proofs. Paul shows three Old Testament men and he first tells you about Abraham. Now we all know that Abraham became a great man of faith, a great worshipper of the one true God. But before God called him, he was an idol worshipper in Mesopotamia. But in God's grace, he called him out of that. And then he shows us Isaac. I've chosen Isaac. Isaac wasn't the firstborn. Ishmael was, was born from Hagar. That's the reason for the difference. Ishmael wasn't Sarah's child. Ishmael wasn't the child of promise. Isaac was. And then Paul takes us to Jacob. Jacob had a twin brother, Esau. Esau was the firstborn. The birthright belonged to Esau. They had the same mother, Rebecca. They were twins. 
with nothing to choose between them, except one was born first. But God discriminated between them. God gave preferential treatment. We live in a world, of course, where we're not allowed to discriminate or give preferences today, but God discriminated. This is what the Bible means when he says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. The fact that it's, it is stated that God loved Jacob and hated Esau doesn't mean that he had a malicious will against Esau. God was not filled with loathing toward Esau. Now Jesus spoke similarly in Luke chapter 14 verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now Jesus isn't advising hostility toward your family. Rather, people we know, the word tells us to honour our parents and to love one another. But those who want to love Jesus need to love him more than anyone else. The love we have for family, the love we have for friends must be less than the love we have for God. Now Jacob, Jacob now God loved Jacob more than Esau. That's what it's really saying. Even before they were born, even before either Esau or Jacob to, could do any good or, or could do any evil, God chose Jacob to be the recipient of his promise. Jacob's election did not depend on his godliness. If it did, he would never have been chosen. And none of us would ever be chosen as well. It didn't even depend upon his birthright. God is sovereign in the bestowal, in the giving of his mercy. God's will and purposes should never be questioned, friends. Now that's an interesting statement. When tough things happen to you, When tough things happen to people in your family, do you question God's will? Paul shows us three generations of patriarchs where God made his choices. And Paul's meaning is unmistakable. Election is not based on anything in the person themselves, but rather only upon God's mercy. Some fear that this teaching may lead us to spiritual pride. But such a teaching, when it's presented with God's Holy Spirit, should in fact present the opposite, should produce the opposite. Rather, it should produce a fruit of thankfulness, of humbleness, Friends, when you think that God has chosen you, how does that make you feel? I hope it makes you feel grateful for God's mercy and grace upon your life. If you've come to know Christ as your Lord and Saviour, you've been chosen of God, not because of anything special in you, 
or about you. Now, you may have special qualities. I know you all here. I know you all have special qualities. You may have special traits that make you a special person, but you haven't been chosen because of them. Certainly, our trying God has chosen you before he made his universe, before you were even born, not because of anything you've done or will do. Now, as a believer, none of us deserve the salvation of our Lord. Our salvation comes because it's all of grace. It's all of grace of our trying God. Therefore, there's no room that any of us can ever have for pride because our salvation is all of God's doing. It's all of grace. Therefore, God's sovereignty serves serves to demonstrate his grace. Our God rules. He calls the shots. May we be thankful for God's grace and his salvation. How should the doctrine of election motivate us in our evangelism? None of us know whom God has elected. Paul never knew who was elected. He preached to all who would listen. And that's what we're called to do as well. We offer the gospel to all and allow God to be sovereign, calling his to receive his wonderful gift of salvation. Election should therefore motivate us, motivate us to continue in striving to share our faith, in making disciples here, a little way down the road perhaps, maybe another country. And we do this in different ways. We, sh- we support our missionaries who go to other countries. That's the commission. God is the one who does the calling in the heart of an individual as he's done that calling in your heart as well. And if he hasn't, if he hasn't done that calling, now is the time to call upon him and ask for forgiveness, to seek his face, to repent of sin and turn to him. Amen. Let us pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, We thank you indeed for your wonderful grace and your mercy. We don't understand why you've called or chosen any of us. But Lord, we come to you with thankful hearts to having received and been able to receive this wonderful, precious gift of your salvation. Lord, we pray for those who haven't received you, that they would truly receive you. Lord, we pray for those around us who haven't heard the gospel. May they hear it. Even may they hear it even through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. More messages of hope at Essendon Presbyterian Church.org.au or wherever you get your podcasts from.